have a seat. About a year or two ago, the authors Kara Powell and Jake Mulder and Brad Griffin wrote a pretty transformational, eye-opening book called Growing Young. And the subtitle is Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church. And as I started to read the book, my heart was broken immediately. Because they start off with some stats that are pretty eye-opening and sobering if you really think about it. For instance, let me just share a few with you. According to a 2001 U.S. Census Bureau data, adults ages 18 to 29 comprise 22% of the adult population, yet that same age group represents less than 10% of church attendees nationwide. We just had a, a census this last year, and I'm assuming that number, at least that last number, is probably going to be lower. That breaks my heart. The next stat even breaks my heart even more, to be honest. Multiple studies highlight that 40 to 50% of youth group seniors, like young people in your church, drift from God and the faith community after they graduate from high school. I was thinking of how do I share this with you in a way that gets your heart and gets your attention. I want you to imagine if I put a picture on the screen of all high school students from Sandusky, Norwalk, and Port Clinton. They're seniors, I should say just seniors, and I X'd out every other one of them. That's the kind of group that remaining are the only ones following Jesus. The other 50% either going to college, going to the Air Force or other armed forces or heading off to a job. A lot of them are not going to follow Jesus. That breaks my heart. It's sobering. This stat's interesting as well. Some, perhaps more than half, so this is kind of good news, of those who drift away from the church end up rejoining the faith community generally when they get married and have kids, but that leaves still 50% adrift. Some of you, are that's your story. You, you maybe gave up on Jesus. You, did, you stopped going to church, reading your Bible, praying. Once you went to college or served in the armed forces or went and did your career, and then whether it was getting married or having kids or something brought you back to the church, and that's great. But 50% of those people who walked away, they're, they're not back yet. And as I read these stats, I was overwhelmed with sadness. I don't want to see the next generation be like that. And after I kind of sobered, I was sobered up by that, I was sad about that, I was down about that, and then I felt like the Lord say, well, enough's enough. You've grieved it. Now let's do something about it. And that's what I love about this book. It tells you some things that get your attention, but then it tells story after story of churches who actually did what this book is asking them to do, and they have a thriving next generation in their church because they took the next generation seriously. And my dream for the chapel is if these three authors contacted us at the church and said, hey, tell us your story of young adults and high school students and middle school students and kids. How are they following Jesus? How are they growing in your church? I wish we could be like, hey, we are doing this and doing that. And we're seeing young adults and students and kids coming in flocks to the chapel and they're growing. That's my dream. I hope it's yours too. You see, as we look at the vision of the church, where we're headed as a church, we want to build a culture of family so everybody walks in and feels like they belong. And we want to follow Jesus. We want to do whatever it takes to make sure that we're growing in our Christ-likeness. But we can't have a vision about the future if we don't talk about the future. And who is the future? 
It's your kids. It's your grandkids. It's my kids. And I want to make sure the chapel is doing whatever it takes to equip the next generation. So that's why as we continue to look at our vision and where we're headed, we have to do whatever it takes to equip the next generation. How are we going to do that? Well, Scripture tells us how. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the Old Testament. First Kings. It's right before Second Kings. Chapter 18. Not a funny joke there. Okay, I was trying to be funny, but never mind. First Kings 18. It's the story of a man named Elijah. Elijah's a prophet, which simply means he speaks on behalf of God. And this prophet Elijah is sent to King Ahab. King Ahab is the king of Israel at that time. Now, King Ahab has turned his back on Yahweh, which is Israel's true God, and now he is worshiping a different God named Baal. And as he's worshiping this God, God is frustrated with that, and so he sends Elijah to confront Ahab. And he's also going to confront the prophets of Baal. And the way that Elijah is going to do this, the way that God is going to show himself in 1 Kings 18, is with a duel, with a showdown, so to speak. Elijah is going to challenge the prophets of Baal. So if you have Bibles, turn to 1 Kings 18, verse 24. Here's what Elijah says this showdown is going to look like. He says, prophets of Baal, call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God, and all the people agreed. So they agreed to the terms of the showdown. Okay, you call out to your God, and if your God is real, he will answer you, and then we will know he's real by sending down fire. And I'll do the same thing to Yahweh. I'll do the same thing to Israel's true God, the God that you've turned your back on, the God that deserves our worship. I will call out to him, and we will see who answers. Well, Elijah, being the gentleman, gives first dibs to these prophets of Baal. And look what happens. Verse 26. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, O Baal, answer us. But there is no reply of any kind. Setting the stage, here's this fire built of, or this wood of altar, and they're hoping it's going to be lit by fire. And there's morning and noontime crown. God of Baal, hear us, hear our prayer. Show us that you're real over and over and over again. And nothing happens. So obviously they're disappointed. Now it's Elijah's turn. Now Elijah could have simply prayed to God and God could have sent down fire, but that wasn't good enough for Elijah. Elijah takes wood, he builds an altar, and then he pours gallons of water on the wood. So much so that the wood is going all around, or the water is going all around this altar wood. It's flooded. And you think to yourself, what are you doing? See, Elijah is so confident in his God that his God is faithful, that his God hears his prayer, that even when the stack is, or when the cards are stacked against his God, he knows his God will come through, even when it seems impossible. So he pours this water, and he stands back, and he prays. Listen to his prayer in verse 36. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. Everything was burned up by this 
consuming fire. It licked up all the water in the trench, and when the people saw it, they, fa- they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. This is the very passage that we must look at and apply to how we're going to equip the next generation. You may be sitting there thinking, what, are you going to build an altar and pour water on it? No, I'm not going to do that. But the principles of that story are life-changing, especially when it comes to the next generation. You see, the only person, or I should say being, in this story that can do what he did was God. God was the only one that could bring down the fire in this wood, right? And that's so true even with the next generation. Think about it. It's only God that's going to enact salvation in our kids and grandkids. We can't force it. We can do whatever we want and whatever it takes. But at the end of the day, it's that person in God that's going to happen. God's got to bring down the fire of salvation. It's God that can only answer our prayers for our kids and our grandkids. It's only God that can take a life and not make it follow the patterns of this world, but transform it into Christ-likeness. It's only God that can do that. He only has the power that can come down and bring the fire of salvation or that fire of life change. But you know who else is really important in the story? Right underneath of God is Elijah. Because you know what Elijah had to do? He had to build the altar. He had to take the wood of the altar and stack it in such a way where he told God, God, I trust you enough where I'm going to bring all these pieces of wood. Of course, he dumps water on it, and he trusts that God will come through for him. And that's what God is asking us to do. We are Elijah in the story. We are called to bring the wood to the fire or to the altar so that he can bring down the fire. In other words, we must do whatever it takes to reach our kids and our grandkids. It is so easy to see statistics about kids leaving church. They don't want to go to church. They don't want to read the Bible and just say, oh, man, that just stinks for the next generation. I don't want to be a church like that. I want to be a church that will bring the wood to the altar and look up to God and say, God, you light the fire. Whatever that looks like, I'm going to trust you, but it is up to us to do something about it. That's why in the book that we looked at before, the authors say this, young people need you to dream new dreams that affect this generation and future generations to come. You meaning you who are older, you who are single, you are in small groups, you who have kids, you who don't have kids, you who are married, you who are divorced. I don't care who you are. God wants to use you. And he's equipped you in a way to give you a piece of wood, to put it at the altar, and we pray that God would light it on fire with his life change. We want to do that as a collective church. We want to do that at family, as families at the church as well. My question is, what is your piece of wood? What are you going to bring? Because it's going to take all of us. And that's not cliche. All of you are gifted in different ways and bring something to this altar that God will use if we're working in sync to do it. That's why here at the chapel, when we look at how can we do this well and, and what's a memorable strategy that we can use and employ at the church to do this in a way that honors God. And we've come up with a strategy that we've actually borrowed from somebody else. But it's called being an orange church. 
orange is, of course, red and yellow together. The yellow is representing the church, which is the light of the world. The red represents family, which is the love of the family. And when they come together, the fire can be lit. The wood is set at the altar if we do this well. What I love about the chapel is that we really try to do whatever it takes to reach the next generation. The problem is we don't have a lot of time to do it. In a given year, give or take an hour or two, the chapel has 40 hours with your kids and grandkids. That's it, 40 hours to reach them for Jesus. And let me tell you, our staff and our volunteers use those 40 hours well. For instance, we have early childhood, which is preschool and under. And whether there's volunteers and they're rocking our babies so we can be in church or they're starting to show videos and different ways of how to follow Jesus at their age level, that's happening. And I can attest to that because I have four kids, two of them of which are in that program. My four-year-old Eden and my two-year-old Remy, they come home from church and sometimes I'll ask them, hey, what did you learn? And they don't really know. They remember the snack really well, but they don't always remember. But there's sometimes when they do. And we'll talk about prayer, they'll talk about God's love, they'll talk about Jesus' grace. And I am so thankful for our church who starts young, as young as they can, and start to build them up in Christ. We have a K through 5 ministry, obviously kindergarten through 5th, where they have small group leaders who care about them. They're opening the scriptures, they're worshiping together, they're watching material that reaches them where they're at. And I'll tell you, my son is six years old, and he wants to be baptized in March. My wife and I are wrestling with, with that because he's a little young, but when we ask him about salvation, we ask him, he loves Jesus. And what I love about that is my wife and I try our best to help, and I'll get to that in a moment, but it's our church. It's our church reaching out to our kids. My eight and six-year-old right now are at our Sandusky campus, and they have their small group leaders, and they're known. And I wouldn't be surprised either this week or another week in the next couple of weeks where I get a postcard in the mail, not to me, but to Michael Lapata or Hudson Lapata from their small group leader saying, I love that you're at church. I love seeing you be kind or I love seeing you paying attention. Can't wait to see you next week. Those are people like you in our church and we're so grateful for that. That's using 40 hours well. That's building a good altar. We have the same thing for middle school, which is meeting right here or right now over in the building Right over there, led by the Chapmans, Ron and Angie. And what I love about them is they just care. We can't have enough people in our kids' lives caring for our kids, especially in those awkward, weird middle school years. What I love about what they do is oftentimes when I'm here, they'll bring me a birthday card to sign for a kid to send them in the mail or hand it to them if they're here to say, hey, we remembered your birthday. And for a kid, that means something, that their church would remember their special day. And they build into them, and they grow, and they talk about Jesus. In our high school ministry, it looks different than it ever has before, and I love what God is doing. Right now, we're calling our high school ministry Last Sunday, and they meet on the last Sunday of the month. They meet at our Sandusky campus because all three of our campuses come together, and they always do something awesome. Like next Sunday, starting at 6.30, they're calling it Blackout Night. And we're going to have live worship. We're going to have live teaching. And man, uh, Joe Binkley does a great job with the messages. Then we're going to have a performance by Intellect. He's a Christian rapper who we really love. Pastor Ryan and I, we love, love him. And he preaches theology. Or excuse me, raps theology, not preaches. That's what I'm doing. But he raps it. 
And he's so great. And he's going to come and meet our high school students where they're at. They like to hear rap, and this guy's going to blow them away, but with Jesus. That's what our high school students get to do. And what I love about our high school ministry is we're working towards having small groups in people's homes because they want, we want them to be cared for. And one high school student said this. He said, youth ministry has given me a place to interact with other people my age. We share the same beliefs. It's like family, outside my family. That's what we want. We want our students to belong. If our students belong, that percentage, which is at 50% when they leave, is going to be lowered and lowered and lowered. Then our young adult ministry is thriving here at Port Clinton. I love it. Our young adults, they're not just worshiping together, but they are serving. They are doing things for the community. It's just incredible. They meet here uh, Tuesdays at 6.30. What a great place to grow. I love that our church is trying to use its 40 hours to impact the next generation. But honestly, if I'm being transparent, our church is not the main discipler of our kids. Because we have 40 hours with them. Do you know how many hours you have per year with your kids? 3,000. 3,000 hours to impact them for Christ. You know what's interesting? Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, and he's quoting Proverbs at the beginning. He says, train your child up in the way they ought to go. And then he says this, and make sure you're going that way as well. You and I have the tools and God's spirit to disciple our kids. We are the main influence in our kids' lives, whether we like it or not. And we ought to be so close to Jesus that we should be able to say what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul was so close to Jesus that he told the church, you can see what I'm doing and just follow that pattern and you will become like Christ. Can our kids say that about us? Can our grandkids say that about us? Can our nephews and nieces say that about us? Not the church. We are not here to help raise your kids the way that you can. You have to do that. So when our kids are choosing friendships in their life, they are looking at our friendships, whether we know it or not. And they're going to model those kinds of friendships. When our kids are learning about suffering and pain, and they see you trusting or not trusting God in that, that is going to be the example that they think Christ is like. When they're thinking about forgiveness and letting things go, they're going to look at you and how you're doing that with other people. And when it's about sex, love, relationships, they want to hear it from you, or they're going to learn it somewhere else. We have 40 hours in this church. You have 3,000. We need to maximize them the best way. That's why over the next three years, we're going to do more for families than we ever have in the chapel's 34-year history. We're going to continue to give you resources that's going to help you during the week. We are going to offer brand new parenting classes that we've never offered before to help you equip your kids. And I know I am not a good dad if I'm not a good husband. And we're going to have marriage classes and more on marriage than we've ever had before so we can be healthy for our kids. It is so important that over the next three years, you think about what is your part. It's not just Pastor Ryan that should be putting the piece of wood down. It's all of us. And if we do it well, look out. God will light a fire. And let me tell you, if you haven't gotten how important this is, let me reaffirm it as we close our time together. Look at this stat. 94% 
of Christ's followers make their decision to follow him before 8 p.m. What kind of church are we going to be? Please pray and consider what is it that you can do in your life, in your home, and in this church to put your piece of wood down so we can say, God, bring the fire. And he will look down and light it bigger than we ever could imagine. Let's pray together. Father, this whole series is about the why. And we will continue to think about how that looks over the next couple of years. But Lord, I pray we would understand the why. The why is that we want to see our kids and our grandkids follow Jesus, period. Lord, I want to see the chapel in 20 years having 15 campuses all over the place because we have so many young people coming and they're replicating that in their kids and then their kids, Lord. Sure, the next generation, it seems dark, but if we want to be the light and the love, God, who knows what you will do if we ask you to send down the fire, life change. Lord, we are open to you. Use us just like you used Elijah. Pray this in your name. Amen. You can keep seated and we'll dismiss you in a moment.